Welcome back to the Hikma Collective Podcast. I'm Erica Makalak, founder of Hikma, and I am delighted to bring you highlights from our Hikma Office Hours conversation with Camille Collison. I first met Camille in the University of British Columbia emergency room, where she generously agreed to follow through with an interview with me after breaking her wrist. I was writing an article for the National Endowment for the Humanities about her truth and reconciliation work long before HICMA was a sparkle in my eye. Camille is someone who has definitely upped my level of literacy in talking about decolonization and reconciliation work. By the way, for those of you for whom those concepts are relatively new, we will include links in the show notes. But high level, since the summer of 2021, hundreds of mass graves have been identified at Canadian Indian residential schools, and these sites likely represent only a fraction of the thousands of Indigenous people who were killed. Collison has been working to change the system since long before this new media attention, ever since leading the release of the Canadian Federation of Library Association's Truth and Reconciliation Report and Recommendations in 2017. She has worked with libraries and universities across North America to unravel the colonial biases embedded in their practices. So what you'll hear today are highlights from our conversation in fall 2021 about Indigenous ways of knowing and how we collaborate and partner effectively to drive change. Hope you enjoy. We talk about HICMA office hours. This is a new series that we've started offering um, to create uh, conversations with change makers about how, ide- how ideas take shape, travel, and thrive. That's the tagline that we use. And so every month or so, we invite a speaker who has unique knowledge to come talk about their work. Um, and we often talk about this in our growing learning community as the act of creating space for different kinds of of conversations and different kinds of knowledge to come together. But the focus today is really on um, spaces that aren't ours to create. Um, And I know of no one who has thought more deeply and more specifically about how we bring different kinds of knowledge together than Camille Collison. So really extremely grateful um, to have her here. Camille has done incredible work to think through um, how librarians and archivists and how the rest of us uh, modeling on on the work that she has done can talk about Indigenous ways of knowing and build collaborations respectfully. Um, And I find that the way that she has gone about that work is incredibly inspiring. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much. Um, uh, you'll hear me say this throughout the uh, conversation, but Madhu, which is thank you in Taltan. So Madhu Cho, huge thank you to Hikma and to Erica um, and Nicole for having me here and for hosting this conversation. Um, I'm really honored to be living and working on um, uh, Stalo Tamex, which is sacred Stalo land and we were fortunate enough to receive um, some teachings about that, and I'm honored to uh, receive them. And um, I think that part of being a good guest is trying to live up to those teachings every day and in the way that we walk. So um, I think that that's one of the first and foremost things is that many Indigenous people, including uh, Teltan people, 
um, uh, 85% of our, our, of our nation's members live off of our traditional territories. And so where we live and where we walk um, and uh, do our work is always of importance to um, us to do that in a good way. I think today we were, um, we're meeting today and at a quite unusual time, especially for us in um, the lower mainland. And I'm actually uh, surprised and pleased at the number of people that have joined us. Um, on a Monday morning, I wasn't sure if anyone would actually join. And then I saw a few people. So it's nice to see all, um, quite a few uh, familiar faces and new faces here today. And I just wanna uh, welcome you to come uh, today to talk about um, um, traditional knowledge and how we can work with it in a respectful and meaningful way um, with the traditional owners of that knowledge and in a way that uh, reflects their their worldview and um, without getting into um, um, some of the kind of pan-Indianism or globalist um, type worldview when it comes to Indigenous knowledge. So I think that that's one of the things that is so uh, difficult not to do. So part of that is because of the way that colonial um, and nations have organized themselves on many different nations' lands and um, in, the, in the communities um, and the province that I'm from, uh, which is British Columbia, there's 204 distinct First Nations. Um, and there's almost 600, and that's just First Nations. That's not including um, Métis communities or um, in Inuit ham hamlets. And I think that that's really important to remember that um, those numbers are actually much larger than that of what those communities are, depending on how they organize themselves both traditionally and um, um, with, um, within today's society. And that's also to remember that there's many uh, communities who are still fighting for, um, for acknowledgement uh, because they were, uh, whether they were off berry picking or they were off um, hunting or in their summer lands, they were not included. So we know that there's those as well too, even just within the Canadian context. So I guess, Camille, you've, you've touched on this a bit, um, but I have a very baseline question for you, um, which is one that I have been grappling with since I got here and still don't have an answer to. And that is, uh, what is your definition of Indigenous ways of knowing? We hear this term a lot, but I think many of us who are trying to engage in this conversation don't know where to start. Um, and, and the follow-up question to that is, how do you recommend that folks go about building respectful collaborations? So those are my two questions for you. I would say indigenous ways of knowing is like everything. It's everything in the world. It's our relationship um, uh, with the creator or um, in my language, and hopefully I said that right. And then um, uh, it would be our connection to our land, to our water, uh, to our mountains, to the um, all of the um, uh, uh, creatures that live within that, um, with each other, that would be our ways of knowing. How do we relate with each other? Who do we marry? Who are allowed to marry? So for us, it would a Teltan law meant that we were only a marry, allowed to marry the opposite clan. And there was a lot of reasons for that. And we see that 
um, you know, with people married too close, sometimes their children pay the price for that. And um, so we, um, uh, there's, it's basically indigenous knowledge and our ways of knowing relate to everything, how we are, our connection, our relationship with them, with everything around us, no matter what it is. And um, I think that that's really important to remember that uh, some people, I think one of the biggest mistakes, or I wouldn't say mistakes, but probably challenges that happens is that um, for many, they try to separate out ways of knowing into libraries, archives, museums, mainstream type of things. And with us, there's no separation. It's everything's interconnected. It's interrelated. It's so it's in, that interconnectedness that really defines Indigenous ways of knowing. So it's not just how do we live in a good way? How do we conduct ourselves in a good way? How do we treat each other with respect? And not saying that anybody is perfect at that, but that there's an attempt to at least do that. And uh, if there isn't, if there is harm done, then we um, are supposed to acknowledge that and try to either create reconciliation and uh, reconstitution, which is more than just saying, I'm sorry, um, but that we try to put restore that person back to their former um, uh, to where they would have been formerly or even above that. So there's a lot of things that are much more nuanced in our communities as far as those relationships with each other go, but our relationships with everything is really about the ways of knowing. And so remembering that it's like a big web, a, a spider's web, if you will, that everything is interconnected. So if there's one um, thread that's broken and you'll see a spider do this, they go out very quickly and fix that so that everything holds back together. So it is about that. It's about those ways of knowing are sometimes written. Uh, sometimes they're in, um, uh, they're, they're uh, um, contained in art or they're contained in my earrings by Fred Moyer or the dress that I'm wearing by my other cousin, Alana Witzer. So that's just from my community and I made sure to to wear my Teltan um, um, clothing and, and that kind of thing, which isn't regalia, it's actually everyday wear. And I think that that's the thing. So we do have very sacred things that we wear as regalia, which would be our button blanket. We don't wear that every day, but we do wear who we are on a regular basis every day. And I think that's, um, for me, that's really important because then people know, okay, she comes from Tuskegee clan of the Tultan Nation, and we work every day to uphold our clan and to make them proud of us. And that's not always the case. We're all human. We're not going to, we're going to make mistakes, but when we do, we need to own them as well too. And I think that that's really important as well. And that's kind of what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has Attempted to do in a way is to be able to say, look at, we, we're telling the truth now about what happened in residential schools, that children as young as three, even younger than three in some cases. But um, for me, three is very important because that was my uncle's age when he was taken to one. Uh, we're taken and, and, um, and re-educated and, um, and the intent was to kill the Indian and the child and to take away their language and those kinship connections. And I think that that's so important that we acknowledge that that truth happened, but then also too, to work on the reconciliation as we can tell from uh, the discovery of unmarked graves that 
communities and people who have gone to residential school have always said that we're there. Um, and that shock happening that that truth is not um, always either been told or it hasn't been believed when it was told. And part of it is, is that it wasn't believed. And so I think it's been told a lot by residential school survivors, very brave um, residential school survivors who I, I, I lift my hands up to every day because that had to be the most painful thing for them to recount um, uh, their time in residential schools. And I think we are starting to get better at telling the truth, but now how are we um, doing reconciliation? And that is really about where the relationships are so important. And so getting to your second part of that question about the relationships and how do we go about establishing that? Well, I always talk to people and I say, you know, when you met a new friend, how did that happen? When you met your significant other, how did that happen? And it is about taking that initial step to be able to meet each other and then building a respectful relationship on it. I think about um, some of that as um, uh, the relationship with um, is, is, you know, somewhat like um, a marriage because a marriage isn't like we have our relatives. Uh, you can't choose your family. You just need to be in relationship with them. And sometimes people aren't, but you do choose who you um, uh, decide to have as a significant other. So it is kind of like building that. How do you get to know them? You understand them. You spend time with them. That's the biggest thing. Spend time with them to know who they are, to talk to them, to find out where what they want. What's their worldview? If you don't spend time with them, um, and talk to them and share with them and how let them share with you how are you going to build that relationship so in answer to that I would say that it, the, the smallest part of that answer that I could um, uh, condense it down to is spending time I think that that's so important to do that and to ask other people what they want so very often we get people who come into communities and think they know what we want you know we want to do this we want to do that and, uh, and then talk in our language, which is, I've been guilty of that as well, too. So as a librarian, I sometimes talk in acronyms and uh, big words about, um, about um, the work that we do. And it's really important to speak in a language that a person can understand. And I think that that's part of us as cultural heritage uh, professionals. We have to remember that other people are like, uh, in kindergarten as far as our technology goes. So you wouldn't go up to a person who is um, four or five years old and start talking to them in huge, um, in big words and language that they can't understand and these huge concepts that are much above them. Please don't do that to our community too, but don't pretend that they don't know it. Because I would say that there's very few people in our communities that don't grow up cutting their teeth off um, knowing what rights and title are. And um, because I always say that to people are like, when I was young, they'd be like, oh, you have a lot of knowledge about um, rights and title. And I'm like, well, it's basically what we cut our teeth on in our community. We hear it all our life because that's something that we're grown to uh, protect and to be able to do that. It doesn't matter if we've grown up in our community or not, we know about it. And I think that that's important too. So I think there's a balance and that's created within that relationship and knowing what people know, helping them with what they don't know, you learning from them. There's always a reciprocal exchange and I can guarantee 
if you spend time with community, you'll learn more than, than you're giving. Um, so I think that that's a, a really valuable thing. And so the first thing that you would do is to spend time with people and to be open to their ways of knowing. Thank you, Camille, that's really helpful. Uh, Nicole, can I invite you to read a question from the chat? Sure, uh, Kasha asked a really good question. Um, curious about your take on what the distinction is between indigenization and decolonization. That's a hard question. <laughs> well, I think that that is a good question. Yeah, I agree. And um, thank you for that deep thinking. <laughs> and now I definitely have to answer because that's my clan member too. <laughs> um, I just have to laugh about that because it's um, um, our... Um, our Teltan women are definitely um, very uh, committed to preserving our ways of knowing and our language and who we are. And I appreciate um, being challenged on that question. So um, I think that indigenization and decolonization are somewhat similar in some ways, but I also think that it's also can be problematic. And so, um, uh, indigenization is much different, obviously, than decolonization, but there has to be uh, decolonizing before we can actually indigenize. So that's where the similarity would be is in the fact that we, we still need to do that work and that some of those processes are going to be the same except the decolonization. And then when you indigenize, it's going to be actually looking at the same things, but in another way. Um, so when we're talking about decolonizing, decolonizing structures and processes and how we do our work, uh, we're looking at ways that we can change that have been kind of accepted um, ways of doing business. And I mean, I basically, I work in academia. So most of the things that I think about are in academia, but even um, if we're looking at um, uh, public spaces like public libraries or archives that are open to the public, we need to decolonize some of those. And I think part of the decolonizing process is that we are, um, are working hard to be able to, so if I'll use one example, and that is <clears throat> we need to train people from a multiplicity of diverse backgrounds and viewpoints and to work in many different languages. We need to train those people. And part of that is that decolonizing process. And, and then that leads back to who are we accepting into our programs, into our master's programs, into our educational programs to be able to do that. And how are we making that accessible to them? So for example, if people come from a marginalized or underprivileged background, um, how are we actually uh, attempting to make that education uh, available for them if they want to take it. So we're actually start, need to start at the beginning. How, who do we recruit? Who do we recruit from um, high schools to say, hey, you can do this? You know, there was people that I know that came in and I went to university later in life that, um, that uh, didn't know that they could ever achieve what they've achieved because no one told them that when they were in high school. So I think it starts at the beginning of many of the ways that we do things. So whether it's getting people into the programs, if we don't have them in the programs and they haven't done their education, then how can we hire them into places that are in libraries, archives and museums? So how do we do that? How do we even get them interested in it? 
I always say in this profession and cultural memory uh, profession is that it's not even known. I didn't even know that I could become a librarian until uh, Dr. Jean Joseph from the Wet'suwet'en Dalek Nation uh, was the um, founding library at Wewa Library. And I ended up being voluntold to do a fundraiser for the library, for their collections. And um, so it really was at that point that I met her um, when my elder uh, sister Cynthia just I was too busy to do it and I ended up helping with this fundraiser. I met her and she um, appreciated my skills, hired me as a student worker. And um, I still was really firm about going into anthropology, but it changed my life. And years later, I did go into being to, to this profession. But that's a difference that one person can make in someone's life. And I look at that and I think, well, that is the decolonizing process that we're actually encouraging people to come into it. And it's those people that come into our profession and academia that are gonna indigenize it. And so with that, um, I carried a responsibility from the people who believed in me and supported me into this field to be able to start to indigenize that, <clears throat> that profession. And um, part of it with the indigenizing is to um, create ways of embedding it into things like the curriculum. How often do you go into a library or an archive and see someone who looks like you uh, there? And I think that's important. How are we serving the communities that, are, that we actually are part of, uh, whether it's um, indigenous communities or Asian communities or South Asian communities or black communities, Hispanic communities, wherever we are, we need to serve that community and we need to pull up the people. And to me, that's the big part about colonization. In cultural memory um, uh, professions, there's a big status quo. And it's often well-meaning people who think they know what other people want. And I'm not saying that they don't want that. They may want that. It's just that you, you need to ask them if that's what they want. So that's part of that decolonizing process. So there is a big difference between decolonizing and indigenizing because what the decolonizing needs to happen on all fronts for all peoples. Um, but indigenizing is really specific to indigenous ways of knowing. And so I think that there's a really quite a big difference, but I think one is a process that needs to happen before the other happens within, um, uh, specifically within the academy. So I hope I answered that sufficiently. Thank you. Yeah, really great question. Appreciate it. Um, I think we have just one more question in the chat, if we still have time. Daphne asks, is there something Camille would recommend as something intentional that members of our professional associations could do or stop doing to encourage respectful relationships with Indigenous communities? Well, you know, one of the things that I keep on thinking about is that um, I, I wonder if one of the things that I would say that is so important for people is to listen to, uh, to listen to us when we're speaking. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of Indigenous librarians and archivists over the years, and there will continue to be that have laid out good paths forward. And one of the things that I think is so disheartening for many people is that um, uh, sometimes people aren't listening. So we keep on saying the same things over and over again. 
And I'll give an example of this is that we do have a First Nations Read program, which recommends different books and that kind of thing. And then um, uh, I noticed in the um, Dalhousie lecture that I had asked Dr. Jean Joseph to, to um, come back and do that somebody asked for a book list. And I thought to myself, so you're asking one of our esteemed elders who is um, who is uh, above any of the rest of us in the work that she's done, being the title librarian for Delgamut uh, Gizdate case and ensuring that oral histories are embedded into, um, into the court as, as legal evidence. Um, and you're asking her to give you a book list when you have Google. Um, and to me, that was just unbelievably offensive. I was really upset, not at the person, but at the lack of understanding um, that, that many of these things have already been done. So I would say you're exhausting Indigenous librarians and archivists by asking the same questions over and over again when you already have the resources and we provided them. One of the biggest things with, um, with the CFLA of CAB Truth and Reconciliation Committee report was that I was always asked the same questions over and over again. And part of that report was to answer those questions and to give people a direction forward. There will be upcoming the Truth and Reconciliation Task Force. Um, um, uh, the um, uh, report and recommendations are going to come out shortly from that. And I think that that's really important for the archive community uh, from the Steering Committee on Archives. But I think, honestly, it's to listen to Indigenous people when they've told you and just not keep on asking them over and over again and create relationships with them that are ongoing. So what I mean by that, and I'm not saying this to offend anyone, I'm trying to gently nudge people to kind of do this work themselves, is that if I had a relationship with um, uh, a significant other and I only talked to them when I needed something from them, that's not really much of a relationship and probably that wouldn't last for very long. I'm guessing, you know, hey, honey, give me some money every month or so would not probably work out very well. Uh, but I don't have time for you. I don't have time to have dinner with you. And I, you know, I'm sorry, but I'm busy. I don't have time to do this. I'm so busy right now. I don't have time for you. And the rest of the month, but when it came to payday, I really wanted to get some money from you. I, that's not going to happen. So it has to be an ongoing, meaningful relationship, not an extractive relationship or reciprocal relationship. And, you know, every community that I go to wants something different. I don't know what they are. I could never tell you what they are as an Indigenous person because I don't have a relationship with that local community. Now, I know that many of you on here are already doing that work or else you wouldn't be on here. So this message is really I'm preaching to the choir right now, and I know that. But I think that it's really important to keep on saying um, is saying the, um, uh, this because I feel like it's not still not being done where there's this ongoing relationship with each other where we actually talk to each other. And I think that that's so important. And, you know, sometimes you're going to go to communities and they won't know what they want because they don't really know what you do. And so when they understand, and I think I, I, I'm an example of this, I, I didn't understand what people didn't know when I went and I worked with some communities. And so instead I was talking at this level and I should have been talking at this level. Um, and I've been guilty of that. I, I definitely have had um, many regrets for doing that because it was so easy to me, but it wasn't that easy to them. And so remembering that, remembering that in the relationship that we're coming from a 
a privileged place of knowledge within this profession that well, they don't always have. So I think that that would be kind of part of where we're coming from is just how do we talk to Indigenous communities and for each community, it's going to be different. And then not assuming that they're not doing that work. In every community I've ever gone to, um, every community, they're doing something to preserve their traditional knowledge, whether it's they're on cassette tapes and they need to be digitized to um, more um, uh, newer technology, they need to be migrated to that. If they're recording the stories of the elders, if they're working with language, I mean, I've seen little language storybooks that are photocopied on that. The, um, at the band office, we used to photocopy our dictionary at the band office to give to people. It's kind of one of those things that people are doing, but they're doing with the best that they can with the resources that they have. So it might not look like what we do in libraries, but they're still doing something. So find out what that is and then help them with that. Uh, give them that technology that they need. Hey, you know what? We can afford to send these out to a printing press for you or whatever. But every community is doing something. We are very aware that if we do not preserve our knowledge, that it won't, um, that we won't have it. And so we are doing that, but it's about helping them where they're at. And I don't know what each community has because I would have to go and do an environmental scan of what they have. And I wouldn't even say that to them. I would just say, I need to see what you you're doing <laughs> because we use different language in academia. So I think that that's important to do as well too, just to talk to people and don't assume that they're not doing something, um, but assume that what they're doing, you might be able to build, you might be able to lift them, lift their voices, don't lift yours. I see at conferences all the time, people getting up and talking about their work. And I'm like, where's the Indigenous person standing there beside you? Because I know that they had just as much, if not more, to do with that work than you did. Why aren't you flying them to that? Well, now we're in COVID. But before that, why aren't you flying them to that conference? They need to be part of that. And it's always about money. But I can tell you, people can find money for what they want to find money for. So I encourage you to treat them as equal partners or respected partners and to always elevate their voice and that they have the final say so in whatever um, that uh, project that you're working on them with them is. If they say, no, we can't do that, please stop doing it. Uh, I think that that's so important that we have to allow them to, to have that final word about their own knowledge and their own language and their own community. Because if you're in a relationship and you're doing something to hurt somebody else, and they ask you to stop and you don't stop, you're not gonna be in that relationship for very much longer either. So I think taking relationships that you have with, with people that you admire and respect and that you're, they're loved, that's gotta be what it's all about, you know? I think um, there's a whole, um, there's a whole um, different kind of set of values if you look at it in that way in a respectful relationships and many communities have relationships defined already so uh, looking at how they define those relationships and those clan relationships and who can say what and that kind of thing is really important as well too so I think that those things are it can get complicated but it's about communication and it's about respect for each other and listening to each other that can make the big difference um, moving forward. So I know that was a long answer to a short question, uh, but I really appreciate the question and I thank you for it because 
I think it's so important for us to create those respectful relationships. Thank you, Camille. Yeah. I'd like to say thank you if possible. So I yeah, just want to yeah. say um, adieu, Cho, to everyone for listening. And thank you for taking your time and, and um, time away from your work and for your attention today. I really appreciate all of you. Uh, thank you so much. Madhu. And once again, two years later, I want to extend my heartfelt thanks to Camille and everyone who joined the event. And I would be remiss if I did not also acknowledge Shirley Hardiman, who gave a fantastic land acknowledgement that we didn't record. So thank you very much for listening now and for those of you who listened back then. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Hikma Collective podcast. I'm your host, Erica Makalak, founder of Hikma. The production of this episode was led by Sofia Van Hees in collaboration with Smangele Mavena, Eufemia Valdesare, Ai Mazuda, Nicole Markland, and Deshara Green. Matthew Tomkinson composed the original music you hear now in his capacity as the 2022 Hikma Artist in Residence. This podcast has been made possible with generous support from Innovate BC, Tech Nation, the Information and Communications Technology Council, the Canada Digital Adoption Program, and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. You can find show notes, links, and transcripts at www.hikma.studio slash podcast. Hikma is situated on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Hunkameetum-speaking Musqueam people. We are grateful to be here and to share this space with you. Our speakers, team members, and listeners are based all over the world, and wherever you're listening, we encourage you to learn more about whose land you're on.